Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to We Have Ways Family Stories. Each Sunday, James Holland and I take it in turns to read the stories sent in by you, our listeners. Sometimes moving, sometimes funny, sometimes describing extraordinary events, sometimes detailing small individual tales. These stories help make up our collective narrative of the Second World War. We love reading them, and we hope you enjoy listening to them. This one is from a good friend of the pod, Darren Little. Hi, we have ways gang. This is the story of my great uncle, John Appleby, REFVR, DFM, Polish Cross of Honour, from Cumbran, South Wales. John went on a special mission in July 1944, described as one of the most outstanding and epic flights of the war by an unarmed transport aircraft. This is what happened. John was born in Cumbran, Wales, in 1922, and trained as an air gunner and wireless operator, before being posted to No. 267 Squadron in Egypt in May 1943. 
About this time, the unit's Dakotas were deployed to clandestine duties, dropping supplies to assorted resistance movements. John flew his first such sortie to Kos in October 1943 and went on to carry out 34 clandestine missions supplying partisans in northern Italy, northwest Greece and Yugoslavia. By the summer of 1944, flying bombs were landing in London at an alarming rate. There was growing concern about a potential collapse in public morale and there was a vital need to counter the threat of Hitler's V-weapons. In May 1944, during a test firing, a V-2 came down in a swamp near Sarnaki on the Bug River in eastern Poland. Somehow, the Polish underground army, known as the AK, managed to recover it. They hid the rocket under reeds until it could be safely removed to a barn nearby. It was then transported by cart under potatoes, on little-used rural roads that were shadowed by armed partisans. Jerzy Chmielewski and Antony Kotkjan then worked to dismantle and log all 25,000 components of the rocket with a team of engineers and scientists from Warsaw. The V-2 included a new type of guidance system that had never been seen before. Detailed reports including diagrams, photographs and a chemical analysis of the propellant were produced for delivery to London. Of particular interest was the unusual fuel composition, which was neither oil nor gasoline, and the AK attempted to transport a sample in a flask. The Polish couriers had no cars and had to transport the flask by bicycle on a relay basis. It was discovered that the solution was ethanol alcohol and water. Meanwhile, 19 suitcases containing specialised equipment and V2 parts were ready to be smuggled to the scientists in London. Contact was made with the Air Ministry and the daring plans for Operation Wildhorn 3 were set in motion. On the night of July 25th, 1944, John Appleby was selected as wireless operator on Dakota KG-477V. The aeroplane was stripped of all armaments, the crew carried one small pistol between them, and was fitted with four long-range cabin fuel tanks for the dangerous journey which lay ahead. They were escorted by a liberator during daylight hours before flying on alone after dusk. As well as their important pickup, they are also tasked with delivering four Polish agents carrying suitcases crammed with special equipment. The fourth agent was sent specifically to brief the Polish underground leadership about military support in the event of an uprising. The mission would become just the third landing undertaken by the RAF in occupied Poland during the war. Wheels Up was at 17.30 hours from Bari, southern Italy, flying over the Hungarian plain before they made their final turn at the Carpathian Mountains just one minute behind schedule. Things were far from ideal at the landing zone, as the area was home to 4,000 German troops who had retreated from the Eastern Front. 400 Luftwaffe personnel had made a camp a mile away, and during the day they were using the strip to make training landings and turns. A force of 25 AK officers brought oil lanterns from their homes and covered them with a cylinder made of stiff black paper. The lanterns were visible from the air, but could not be seen from the side. It was a pitch-dark night as the AK took up their positions on the airfield. As John Appleby and his crew drew near, they gave a light signal O and received the correct N in return. At the sound of a whistle, everyone on the landing field removed the cardboard sleeves from their lanterns, but the Dakota was a little too high and aborted its first landing, before managing to put its wheels down at the second attempt. A quick exchange was made with the cargo and agents exiting the plane and the precious prize being loaded, together with five passengers. But now the Dakota could not take off, being stuck fast in the boggy ground. At first the men thought the brakes had been applied in error, despite the controls stating their release, 
so the crew cut the links to the brake fluid drums, but this made no difference. Further engine boosts also failed to shift the Dakota and it appeared the mission might have to be aborted. Then, a spade was produced and after 30 minutes of hard digging, the Dakota was finally released from the quagmire and it ran in a brakeless circle, just missing a stone wall on the edge of the strip. Somehow the plane accelerated, up to 65 miles per hour, ploughing through the ground before climbing into the air. The vital cargo crossed the Yugoslavian frontier just before daylight, with the Dakota making a brakeless landing at Brindisi on a runway still under construction. They finally made it home to Hendon via Rabat and Gibraltar on July the 28th. John ended the war with a squadron in Burma and sadly passed away in 1996, unbeknown to me. I didn't discover his story until three years ago when researching my family tree. He was one of the very few British recipients of the Polish Cross of Valour. Kind regards. Darren Little This is from Tim Foley. Hello, gents. I'm fairly new to your podcast, but I'm enjoying it immensely. I have a family story that's quite amazing. My mum's cousin, Frank Doyle, served on HMS Stronghold, a destroyer which was sunk south of Java by the Japanese in March 1942. Frank was left in the water with other survivors. The Japanese steamed through the men in the water with ropes thrown down over the side of their ship for a lucky few to grab before the vessel sailed away. Frank managed to grab one of those ropes and shinned up it to board the Japanese destroyer. He was imprisoned in a prison of war camp at Nagasaki. The camp was attached to a mine where he worked seven days a week. Discipline was brutal. Frank saw some summary executions by the camp commandant using a samurai sword. The commandant was a short man, so short in fact, that he had a little wheel fixed to the end of the scabbard of his sword, as otherwise it would have dragged along the ground. This detail would be amusing if it were not such a gruesome situation. Beatings were commonplace, even for minor infractions. While they worked in the mine, the prisoners weren't guarded. The Japanese guards took them down for their shift and returned at the end of it. On the day the atom bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, Frank was underground. No guards turned up at the end of their shift and the prisoners were so frightened of the camp regime they stayed underground for a week until hunger forced them out of the mine, only to find the camp destroyed. When the Americans dropped supplies by air, the men were so hungry they dumped the entire contents of the airdrop into a cooking pot, including washing powder, which Frank said tasted terrific. That's what hunger does for you. We used to visit Frank every Sunday, and he didn't much like talking about his experience, but he could be coaxed into it. It really is quite a story. Keep up the good work. Tim Foley This story is from Mark Curzon. My late mum, Phyllis Joan Aylesbury, was born in 1926 in Tottenham. In July 1943, aged just 16, she lied about her age and joined the Women's Land Army. She loved the uniform and wanted to get out of London and into the country. She lodged and worked on a family farm next to RAF Metheringham, a Lancaster bomber base in Lincolnshire. 
She told me that her work boots had a hole in them and because of all the shortages at the time, she just had to grin and bear it. An airman on the base did a cartoon of her showing her flapping boot, which we still have. In 1944, Mum came home to London, on leave, and stayed with her mum, my nan. While she was there, a V1 hit the street. The house was badly damaged and Mum and Nan were buried in the rubble. Mum had a burst water pipe pouring water over her until she was rescued. The experience must have affected her deeply because she never liked the sound of dripping taps or water for the rest of her life. After a spell in hospital after the bombing, she went back to work with the Land Army, back on the farm, and wasn't demobbed until 1946. She always told me that being in the Land Army was the best time of her life. She was a London girl, working out in the fresh air and with the comradeship of the girls from all walks of life. Thanks for the great podcasts and live streams, gents. Keep up the great work. Mark Curzon. Thanks for listening today. As We Have Ways of Making You Talk approaches its second birthday, we wanted to take a moment to thank you all for your continued support. Podcasts started out in April 2019 with a hardy band of 1,000 fanatics downloading that first episode as it emerged noisily into the world. Since then, we've produced more than 280 shows, some of them wide-ranging and forever getting lost down tangents and byways, others super-specific and featuring guests who have opened our eyes to this endlessly fascinating story. If, like us, you're obsessed with the Second World War, we have a members club called The Independent Company. We meet every Thursday night online and share a drink and a laugh and try to answer your questions about any aspect of the war you want to discuss. It's £6 a month, and for that you get a weekly live interactive show, daily videos where we analyse images from the war, plus free audiobooks, usually read by yours truly. If you want to meet and chat and hang out with like-minded souls who share your Second World War affliction, do come and join us. There's already 2,000 people who've taken the plunge, so you'll find lots of good company. No obligation at all. If you just love the pod on a Tuesday and Thursday morning, plus, of course, Sunday morning's family stories, that's absolutely fine. Once again, thank you to all our listeners, or as we call them, the fellow afflicted. Tschüssi tschüss! Ron Hukari writes from Pennsylvania, USA. My father was in the US Merchant Marine during World War II. In the summer of 1944, after spending several months in Port Said, his ship finally got orders to pick up a cargo on the east coast of Africa. The cargo turned out to be a load of rocks, which could only be piled to a very limited depth. They were stored in the holds, but also in machinery spaces and other areas seldom used on the ship. The problem was that the weight of these rocks was not sufficient to laden the ship properly and it sat too high in the water. The propeller was too shallow and the wind pushed them around. Their destination was New Orleans. A storm raged as they attempted to round the southern Cape of Africa. After beating it out for a week, sometimes actually going backwards, the captain decided that if they kept going they would either run out of fuel or the ship would break up. All hands not required to run the ship were instructed to don foul weather gear and life jackets and stand on what would be the windward decks. They waited for a minor lull and made the turn. In spite of taking at least one wave broadside, no one was lost and the ship soon made calmer water. After sheltering off the coast, southern Namibia was their next concern because the geographically restricted shipping lane made it a U-boat hunting ground. 
they timed their passage to go through the worst of it at night. My father was on watch on the starboard bow late that night when they heard voices calling from across the water. The portside watch heard them too. They're American seamen's voices. My dad phoned back to the bridge to inform the captain and ask him to stop. The captain told them that if the ship stopped, they too would be sunk and end up in the water. My father quoted him as saying, Those are dead men's voices. My father never told us this part of the story when we were children. He always choked up when telling it later in his life. We never understood what the rocks were until later, when a friend of his told us a similar story. He had taken a flying boat out of Portugal, heading back to the US. The plane also had rocks piled in the aisleway and under passengers' feet. These rocks were uranium ore, destined for the Manhattan Project. Ron Hikari This one comes from David Nidham Dent. Hello from Canada. I'm a long-time fan of the pod. I'm writing today about my great-uncle, Clifton Rexford Cochlan, known as Tony. Before the war, Tony attended Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and was president of the Arts Society. Today, I also attend Queen's, and am president of that same undergraduate society. After joining up in 1939 as a sea cadet, Tony had a distinguished career in the Navy. He completed his gunnery course in Halifax with highest honours, going on to be a gunnery instructor, gunnery officer on HMCS Assiniboine and second gunnery officer on HMS Resolution. He was eventually named the commander of the Canadian corvette Chilliwack. At the helm of the Chilliwack, Tony helped sink a German U-boat, tailing the sub, forcing it to the surface and sinking it with shell fire. For his efforts, he was awarded a Distinguished Service Cross, the flag from the U-boat, hung in his home in Ottawa. Tony then became one of only two fully qualified lieutenant commanders in the Canadian Navy, a second-in-command on the destroyer HMCS Iroquois. Newspaper clippings tell of his presence on the long, difficult runs to Murmansk and participation in a firefight, helping to sink or damage eight enemy ships outside Saint-Nazaire. One newspaper clipping I particularly like relays that one day, while his ship was in dry dock in Great Britain, Lieutenant Commander Cochrane spent some lively minutes helping clear the decks of incendiaries during a Nazi blitz. The story is also relayed of him jumping into the water to save a struggling sailor while in port. In October 1944, Tony was on board HMCS Iroquois in heavy seas when he fell and broke his thigh bone, which quickly led to an infection and pneumonia. On October the 19th, 1944, Tony Cochlan died. He is buried at a naval cemetery in Orkney. He was survived by his wife, my great-aunt, Martha Cochlin. Martha remained entirely devoted to her husband for the rest of her life. Her basement remained decorated like a ship with porthole windows and many of Tony's Navy mementos. This included the U-boat's flag, the bell of HMCS Iroquois gifted by the ship's crew and an imposing set of naval binoculars. Never removing her wedding band, Martha remained unmarried and visited Tony's grave in Orkney ten times before her death, aged 94. Next fall, COVID-19 permitting, I will be going on an exchange trip to Glasgow. If I am able, I intend to make the trip up to Orkney to pay my respects to Tony. By all accounts, an impressive man, gone far too soon. Thanks. David Nidham Dent, Toronto, Canada.
Regular listener Paul Seaman has both a story and a request for help from We Have Ways listeners. Dear Al, James and the team, as you all know, I've loved the podcast since almost the start and have recently really enjoyed listening to the family stories. My gran, who passed away last March, aged 92, was one of nine children and her five brothers all served. Her favourite brother, Joseph Schooling, was an air mechanic on an Avenger-class escort carrier called HMS Dasher. Dasher was involved in Operation Torch, providing air support for the Central Task Force landings at Iran. After Torch, it sailed back and travelled to Iceland to assist on the Russian convoys. The Dasher had been plagued with engine trouble since it was first converted from a cargo ship in 1942, and it now had to return to Dundee for repairs. Shortly after its repairs, it was on its way up to Greenock and was off the coast of Arran when a huge explosion occurred in the aft area. The ship sank in minutes. Many of the men who managed to escape into the water were burned alive when aviation fuel on the water caught fire. In the end, 379 out of 528 sailors perished, including Uncle Joe. The incident was shrouded in secrecy. The captain was not invited to give evidence at the inquiry, and less than 30 sailors were buried in official graves. Rumours persisted that the incident was somehow linked to Operation Mincemeat, as HMS Seraph collected the dead body of the fake major for the operation, close to where the Dasher sank, and shortly after the accident occurred. Also, eyewitnesses said that the bomb store keys were taken by an unidentified plainclothes man in Dundee during the ship's repairs, and that he left something behind on the ship just a few days before the explosion. There have been books written on the subject, and there was an interesting documentary produced about 20 years ago, but I don't know if any records or evidence has become available in recent years. Perhaps a listener may have further information. There was a lot of bitterness among the families of the deceased due to the secrecy which surrounded the events. I hope one day the truth emerges of what really happened on that fateful day. With warmest regards, Paul Seaman. That's it for this week. If you'd like your family story to be considered for the show, email it to us at wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com, making the subject of the email family stories. There's also a tab on our independent company members' website, which is patreon.com slash wehaveways. Thanks for listening. <laughs>